Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. The King will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That is Matthew 25, verse 40, one of my favorites. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining us today for this third bonus episode in our series on FASD, ACE, that's Adverse Childhood Experiences, and Complex Trauma with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. This series, which really I believe is what every foster and adoptive parent should know, uh, it covers vital topics, right? Uh, And learning tons of invaluable information as we go through this series, uh, I recommend you grab a notebook as you listen to each episode because Dr. Jared Brown will be bringing us a ton of excellent information My notebook is pretty full from our first two episodes. My only struggle is I'm having a hard time reading my notes because I'm taking them down so fast. I have to go back through, listen again, uh, just so I can make sure I catch everything. So if you do not have a notebook handy, you can either pause this podcast episode, go get one, uh, and then press play and keep listening or you can listen all the way through and then go back and listen a second time with a notebook handy. Our regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop into your inbox on Mondays. This series with Dr. Brown, these are bonus episodes that we're dropping on Fridays. So if you are not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate if you would just take a moment to subscribe. That way you won't miss any of the episodes, whether there are regular Monday episodes where we do lots of guest interviews with fellow adoptive and foster parents and other professionals, um, or these special uh, bonus episodes on trauma. Uh, We don't want you to miss any of them. So if you subscribe, they will automatically show up on your device. And if you subscribe through Apple, please go back in there and leave a review. Um, It's super simple, but it makes a huge impact. Uh, We want listeners and we want other parents uh, on this journey, adoptive, foster, and kinship caregivers to find this show when they're searching for their podcasts. Uh, We believe that it is a vital resource to the parenting journey. It is a resource that I wish I had way back in the day, 22 plus years ago when I began this parenting journey. Uh, So I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe and hey, let your fellow adoptive and foster parenting friends know about the show as well. Uh, And if you have a question or a topic of discussion, a question for Dr. Brown, a question for me, uh, just a topic you want to cover, whatever it may be. Maybe you just have a comment and you are feeling encouraged by this podcast and you want to let us know about it. You can reach out by email uh, to me, Sandra Flack, JFO at gmail.com, 
Or you can go through our organization's website, which is justicefororphansny.org. Now to our guest, I'm so excited to have Jared Brown, PhD. Uh, Dr. Brown is a professor, trainer, researcher, and consultant with multiple years of experience teaching collegiate courses. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the Institute, American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies, AIAFS. And he is the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jarrett has, has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum, autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries, as well as uh, he's a sought-after uh, teacher on and trainer on FASD. So we have been learning so much from him. I cannot wait to dive into to today's episode. I'm going to need to get a glass of water or something. I keep stuttering. I'm so excited to bring you Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared. Sandra, how you doing? Thanks for having me back. Well, I'm excited to have you back. This has been such an amazing series so far. Um, this trauma series for our listeners who are primarily foster adoption kinship caregivers like myself. I know that these topics that we're covering um, are vital and so unique for our specific parenting journey. Uh, I I first learned about the impacts of childhood trauma after adopting our five children. Uh, and we were in over our heads. I stumbled upon Dr. Karen Purvis's book, The Connected Child. Um, and that was such a game changer. It was an eye opener. I suddenly learned things that I just did not know before. And then once my husband and I got some training in um, her method of uh, TBRI, uh, trust-based relational intervention, that really, really helped. We began to get our heads above water. And then eventually we really learned a whole lot more about FASD, thinking brain first and accommodations and supports and all of these things for our kids. So I believe this stuff is something every foster adoptive and kinship caregiver, they need to be, we need to be trauma informed. Uh, so I'm thrilled to have you here to help us get trauma informed. And so far, we've discussed prenatal trauma. That was our first episode in this series. Uh, last time we did adverse childhood experiences. And today, we're going to focus on complex and developmental trauma. Uh, so Jared, let's start by unpacking both of these, starting with complex trauma. What is complex trauma? Can you define it? Give us some examples. Absolutely. So for my talk today, I'm going to use complex and developmental trauma interchangeably. So, so when we think of this type of trauma, it's going to be cumulative. It's typically going to be longer in duration. What I mean by that is, let's say a child's growing up in a home and they're being abused. It, complex trauma is not a one-time incident. It's multiple traumas over a longer period of time. So it's repetitive. It's prolonged. Sometimes it can be cumulative in nature where it starts out as one trauma and over time it may grow into other forms of trauma. So when we study multiple forms of trauma, 
think of like um, polytrauma. That's a good search term for your audience just to be aware of. It's called polytrauma. So that can involve multiple types of incidents. So maybe a child is dealing with neglect, physical abuse, maybe they're observing domestic violence. So those are three different types of traumas, but that child is all experiencing them. Maybe not at the same time, but definitely kind of on a repetitive, prolonged and really cumulative manner. When we think of complex trauma, most of this literature talks about it within the context of like early on in childhood, like developmentally adverse childhood events. In the literature, sometimes you'll hear this again referred to like as developmental trauma, relational trauma, sometimes betrayal trauma might be a term just to be aware of. When a caregiver abuses a child, technically that's a form of betrayal trauma because that child believes that that caregiver is their source of safety and stability and comfort. And when that doesn't happen, obviously that fractures attachment issues that can lead to trust issues. Sometimes the child may go inward and shut the world out as they get older. Sometimes they will go outward and have all kinds of behavioral problems. They might lack stranger danger or they can have all of it going on at different times. When a child goes through complex trauma, the very nature of that child being young means that they're probably powerless to escape that kind of trauma. So most of this kind of trauma happens within the household, within that caregiver kind of family system. Typically, complex trauma involves somebody perpetrating that trauma against the child that that child knows, a direct family member, maybe someone that's very close to the family that lives with the family. For a child that has been impacted by complex trauma, any kind of trauma can be overwhelming. When that child becomes overwhelmed, you got to think about toxic stress, what we talked about last segment. Toxic stress and complex trauma go hand in hand. It's impossible not to have toxic stress exposure if you're going through complex trauma exposure. Now, this is where it gets tricky and a little and interesting. Complex trauma can result from direct action by a caregiver to that child, but it can also be exacerbated by inaction. So maybe a caregiver knows the abuse is going on. They're not perpetrating the abuse, but they're not doing anything about it. So there's inaction there. That is very bad as well. In some cases, we think about complex trauma after birth. What happens if that child also dealt with lots of prenatal trauma before they were born? Drug use, alcohol use, all of those things. Any kind of trauma before birth and after birth, if that happened, again, it can be cumulative. It kind of makes things a lot worse. Examples of this, obviously, child abuse, neglect. What about chronic and long-term bullying and teasing as well? So maybe there's some trauma going on at home. As that child gets older, maybe they are lacking social skills. Maybe they're struggling with learning or how to connect with others, or maybe they struggle with how to make friends or reading the social situations. If that's the case, as that child gets into a K-12 environment, 
there's an increased likelihood that maybe they're going to be bullied and teased or there's some peer victimization going on as well. Another accelerant I would say to this is poverty or homelessness. That's a trauma in and of itself. So if the child is dealing with these other kind of traumas I'm talking about and they're living in poverty or homeless types of situations, maybe there's some food insecurity they're bouncing from house to house. They don't know where they're going to sleep the next night. Again, that's kind of an accelerant. There's a whole line of research literature just on the impact that poverty can have on child developmental outcomes. If you are an adoptive parent and you've adopted a child internationally, we also need to be aware, too, of like refugee-based trauma, people coming from war-torn countries, those are all different types of traumas we need to absolutely be aware of. Some other things, if you really want to dig into this research literature, looking at some medical-based traumas, human trafficking, being a child soldier, even role reversal in a family where that child is put into an adult role, that can be very problematic and be very confusing and detrimental to that child over the long haul. Grief and loss, family separation, those are all some things for your audience to be aware of. Before I go a little bit deeper, I want any thoughts, Sandra, any, anything you want me to go a little deeper on? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to conclude that every child in the foster care system, uh, every adopted child, whether they came internationally, I know my own children were um, you know, abandoned and then placed in an orphanage. So there was neglect, uh, you know, malnutrition, uh, just that, that whole, all that lack of nurture, all of those things in those early days. Plus, some of them had been prenatally exposed to alcohol and were sure, you know, there was toxic levels of stress that mom was experiencing during those pregnancies. So I think it's kind of, would you agree that children, um, in these situations, the children that my listeners are parenting, um, they have all uh, on some level experienced some form of developmental or complex trauma. I can't think of a scenario where that would not be the case, in my opinion. Yeah, if, if the child is in an institutionalized based setting, child welfare, child protection, um, thrusted into the adoption arena, that is a trauma for that child in and of itself, even though maybe the child doesn't know or can't connect the dots, doesn't have the words. That is a trauma. It can impact them on the biological level as well. So we need just being aware of how these things can impact the biology, the chemistry, the neural hormones even like oxytocin, which is that bonding chemical and all of those things and how that all these things really play into attachment and behavioral regulation and how they regulate their affect. Sometimes you might see it where the, the child laughs at inappropriate things that just don't make sense. They may cry at things that don't add up. They may go in between mood swings like you're walking on eggshells or on a roller coaster ride of emotions. That is very common for children with extensive trauma histories and attachment. It can have profound impacts on cognition, which is those executive functioning capabilities. 
That's the boss of the brain, the CEO of the brain. It really guides day-to-day behaviors. And then self-concept too. Complex trauma can really have a negative impact on identity development, sense of self, locus of control. A lot of times people with extensive trauma histories, if they haven't had a lot of treatment or intervention, may really focus on external locus of control. External locus of control basically is things outside of that child that really dictate how they're going to feel that day. I think you mentioned last time we talked, the social media piece. If someone doesn't get social media that day or internet or screen time, that could ruin their entire day. That's a perfect example of external locus of control. Internal locus of control, if you tell the child you're off your screen today, if they had good internal locus of control, they would say, okay, that's fine. I know tomorrow's a new day. It's not going to wreck my day. They have more control over their overall sense of how they're going to react to kind of disappointment and change and things that might not go their way. Again, I think we talked about in parts one and two, any kind of trauma, prenatal or postnatal, again, can have profound impacts on social scalability, how they get along with friends, how they make friends, how they keep friends. For young kids, do they know how to play with toys? Do they select toys appropriately? Are they starting to use toys in a manner that might be concerning to that caregiver? As that child gets older, did they have the opportunity to learn attunement? Kids that are raised in institutionalized-based settings early on in life or have a lot of trauma where they're not, they really don't have a lot of exposure to people like modeling eye contact and facial expressions and voice tone, they may struggle with attunement. They may misattune certain situations and people. And attunement, I think, is absolutely a core, core critical component to forming positive, healthy relationships and intimacy and getting into relationships as someone gets older. Problem solving without a doubt and decision-making can be impacted. A lot of these things may be more masked when the child is younger and doesn't have the words to kind of put it into action. And when that child isn't really compared to other kids, but some of these things may be more visible as that child gets into a K through 12 setting where they're placed into a group with other kids their own age, it might be much easier to detect some of these on face value. But we'll talk about plenty of tips and strategies, but the key to all of this is early intervention, early identify this and really find professionals who understand these topics to start implementing strategies early on. You're, you're probably going to see better outcomes, but there's still things we can do at any point in that person's life to make a difference. Some of the consequences, I don't know, do you want me to talk a little bit about consequences now that things you might see long-term as well? Uh, yeah, we can go into that for sure. And I, I know I was just thinking when you're, because I'm furiously taking my notes here and so many of, of the uh, outcomes here that you've been listening, uh, listing that I've been listening to, um, it's sort of like they can fit into both categories of symptoms of FASD uh, as well as trauma. So I, I know like uh, executive function problems, uh, just 
a lot of those different things, uh, being self-regulation, um, the impulse control stuff, like so many of the things that you mentioned, um, all the cognitive stuff, all could be from FASD, which is a prenatal trauma. Uh, and then oftentimes if a child has prenatal exposure, then they're going to have further developmental traumas because they may end up in uh, child welfare. They may end up like my kids were in an orphanage. Uh, parents or caregivers may not know exactly how to um, intervene and could cause more trauma. Um, so does it matter that we know exactly which, you know, if we're seeing a behavior, which is really a symptom of the trauma, if we're seeing these behaviors, does it matter so much that we know which thing caused it? Is it because of FASD? Is it because of uh, early childhood trauma? Um, or is really it just important that we recognize it's, you know, falls into this trauma category and now we need to do the right interventions and supports. And um, so kind of just kind of, cause it just seems like it could fall under so many different categories, but does it even matter? Should we get hung up on what's the cause? Sometimes I think yes, not always, but when we're talking about FASD and if the person with FASD has also had complex trauma exposure, the intervention may need to be tweaked somewhat. And I say that because let's say you're working with a teenager who has FASD and complex trauma, they may function half their chronological age. So professionals who work through a trauma lens, this is just my own experience. The overwhelming majority of those people have never had training in FASD. So you need to modify your approaches a little bit developmental, social, emotional approaches need to be modified to match their kind of functioning age. I think it's imperative for professionals who are running a group, especially within like a controlled setting, to not rely on how that person is doing only in the group. Because we know also often people with FBSD within really controlled settings can often look like they have it mastered They've mastered that skill, but then can they take that skill outside of that group and generalize it to using it at home, on the playground, on the bus, at work? There's a big disconnect. Very important to understand the topic of adaptive functioning as well, because adaptive functioning deficits can be masked in controlled settings as well. And there are some cases where someone with FASD may have an average to an above average IQ. So on paper, they look very competent, but their adaptive functioning skills, money management, social responsibility, using public transportation, taking meds as prescribed, all of those things, they function as if they have an intellectual disability. But if professionals only go by an IQ score, the person with FASD oftentimes slips through the cracks. Those are just a few examples why it's so important to not only become trauma-informed and attachment-informed, but if you're working with someone with FASD or some other neurodevelopmental or neurocognitive impairment, it's important to understand the nuances there. And that takes time as a reading the research, going to trainings, consulting with people on this. But I think you're well on your way if you become trauma-informed and attachment-informed. And I hate to add a couple more informs to this. 
becoming executive functioning informed and sleep informed and probably digestive health informed. Almost everyone that has extensive trauma histories has sleep problems and executive functioning impairments. And many also have digestive health issues in my experience. Why do you want to care about digestive health? Because there's a huge link between what goes on in the gut and what happens in the brain, that gut-brain health connection. And getting sleep under control, regardless of diagnosis, is often recommended as a frontline intervention for people with trauma histories. So really consulting with a sleep specialist. Maybe it's consulting, too, with an executive functioning coach. And if we look at it just through an FASD lens, and we know people with FASD oftentimes have abstract reasoning deficits. And if the therapist or clinician who's trauma-informed is using insight-based therapeutic approaches and asking how and why questions, that oftentimes really goes over the head of someone with FASD if they have a, really those abstract reasoning deficits. It's probably better to find like a some sort of coach People that use like role-playing, modeling, teaching, those kind of things like psychiatric rehabilitation, psychoeducation, maybe it's neuroeducation involving the family members too. And But again, there's lots of good competent therapists out there, but making sure they know how to tweak it for an FASD audience or population is also recommended. Wow, such great stuff, Dr. Jared. Um, so yeah, so let's go on to you were going to get into some of the long term consequences of uh, developmental trauma. So yeah, this is just complex developmental trauma. But again, if you're throwing prenatal things into this, sometimes these are exacerbated. Some research points to the fact you might see higher incidence of self injurious behaviors. So just be on the just be aware of that. Again, not everyone that engages in self-injurious behavior has had complex trauma histories, but it's something to be aware of. Some research points to the especially if the person has not received proper supports and services and there's ongoing abuse, they're more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system as they get older. And they may be more likely to perpetrate violence themselves on others as they get older if these things go on and on and on and they've never had good role models, they haven't learned good coping skills. Maybe as they get older, they're turning to a problematic friend network, they're starting to engage in risk-taking behaviors, or they're starting to self-medicate with drugs or alcohol or whatever substance it is. Some research, too, leads to the fact that higher levels of homelessness, early parenting, and working poverty are more common among people with extensive complex trauma histories, and again, if they haven't had the supports and services in place. Some studies have also pointed to the fact that people with these histories, as they get older, may be more likely to struggle with finding a job or holding a job and might be more dependent on like public assistance and having limited access to reliable transportation. And again, there's a lot of factors to take into account. Maybe the person dropped out of school is also dealing with some learning disabilities, deals with a high level of shame. They don't have a, a, a good solid friendship network or community-based supports or the family that they live with isn't really not there for them, that's when you're going to see these kind of outcomes worsen. 
outcomes that can be better, obviously, is when that child is growing up in a loving, stable, connecting home where that family is consistent and going to be there for that person as they get older. And again, when we think like some of the psychological symptoms you might see, just be aware of those re-experiencing symptoms. And it can differ from person to person, kind of that re-traumatization. Maybe someone is more triggered by like noises, loud, just crowds and just certain triggers that may bring them back to the trauma they experience. Could be certain smells, cologne, perfume. It could be just the very presence of someone's voice tone could be a trigger. So it's really individualized. So, and all of these things could contribute to more nightmares, like hypervigilance too, where basically a good example, like hypervigilance would be if you're walking down the street with someone that's had an extensive trauma history, they may jump at a loud sound or someone taps them on the shoulder and they didn't know that person was behind them, you might see them become very startled. That's a good example of like hypervigilance. So there's a lot of factors to take into account here. Obviously, how long the trauma went on for, the type of trauma, what was going on before they were adopted, what was going on prenatally, what's that child's temperament like too? Genetic traits play into this sometimes, their IQ level, their cognitive abilities. When they're adopted, what's their caregiver availability and behavior like as well? Well, those are just some of the factors that could indicate why one child may have these outcomes and another child that's experienced the same kinds, types of traumas may have a whole other kind of, kind of outcome. I think I mentioned briefly about like biological problems that may result when we think of biological problems through a complex trauma lens, and you can really apply this to prenatal trauma as well. You might see increases in somatic symptoms, which is body-based symptoms, headaches, digestive health, eye pain, chest pain, those kind of things. In some cases, when we're looking at biological problems, the person might have unusual pain sensitivities or the lack thereof. In some cases too, you might see more sensory issues or they're more sensitive to certain smells and sounds and taste and just increases in kind of medical-based problems. Again, they can differ from person to person. And as the person gets older, I've seen this play out a lot too, being aware of like poor self-concept as that person gets older, if they're dealing with a very poor self-concept, think of levels of shame, guilt that you might hear them start saying, they're just stupid. I hate myself. Everybody hates me. That They have a fear of trying because they think that they're going to fail. So why even take that first step? So looking at any history of like self-criticism, self-doubt, just not taking chances. Maybe it's lacking grit, lacking that motivation. Just they don't feel worthy of maybe accepting love or nurturance for other people. Those are all red flag indicators to work with somebody that can help 
really improve their overall self-concept because if they have that internal belief about them as they get older, they're going to have some struggles, I would assume, on a lot of levels. So I'll stop for a minute, Sandra. Any any thoughts on any of that? Uh, I'm, again, furiously taking notes and, and oftentimes thinking of some of my own children uh, that some of these things um, that you're listing here, the, some, of, some of the um, biological problems, also the poor self-concept stuff, sensory issues, um, you know, I do have a couple of kids that I, I'm concerned about in some of those areas of, you know, that shame, guilt uh, area who they can't take um, criticism. Like we, my husband and I have to be very careful in the area of um, if they've done something like mow the lawn, if we find one single thing wrong with it, we had one, one of our kids who didn't ever want to mow the lawn again. Um, he got paid for mowing the lawn, but yet, because dad came home and said, oh yeah, this is great, but you missed a spot. Now he didn't get yelled at. He didn't get reprimanded. It was just, you know, you missed a spot. That correction just, and it didn't even seem like a big deal. You know, a, 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 you know, children who haven't had these adverse experiences can just roll with that, right? Because they know they're loved. They know they're valued. Um, but, you know, my son just decided I'll never mow the lawn again because of that because it, he took it so personally, so deeply. Um, is that an example of what you're talking about here? Yeah, that, that could be one example. Um, sometimes you'll see with kids with these complex trauma histories with that executive function that can impact cognitive flexibility. So it can be more rigid thinking. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be yes. tunnel vision. Yeah. So they have a really hard time seeing again like that forest through the trees kind of looking beyond that moment and it could almost like catastrophizing and it's like it just takes over and then it when that takes over i'm sure the stress hormones are kicking in anxiety frustration in some cases too if people have had these extensive trauma histories they may have experienced a lot of shame and guilt early on in life. And now, again, that could be a trauma trigger. It, it could trigger them into like a fight or flight response where they shut down or they become extremely defensive or they become extremely loud and almost aggressive. Or some cases, it could be a factor in elopement behaviors and they run away and they have all these floods of emotion. They don't know how to handle the emotion. Maybe it's alexithymia where they have that hard time putting all of that energy and those feelings that they're having in their body into words. Maybe it's theory of mind deficits where they have a hard time with perspective taking and understanding the internal mental states of other people. It's usually not one thing. It's typically a combination of things, but those are just a <laughs> few things that you might want to just consider based on what you, sh you shared with me. Yeah. And, and, and I, those thoughts are always running through my mind of, you know, it, it could be shame. It could be, you know, just that, all of that, everything that you just said, and just trying to figure out, well, what do we do as parents? I mean, we did end up looking at it through an FASD lens and realizing, okay, um, it also was an overwhelming task because we have a very large, um, 
a large yard, a lot of property. Uh, so what, for one of our sons, we had to break it down into smaller pieces and kind of create a pattern, a, a routine in the way that lawn mowing is done. Um, and then, of course, always um, just filling their tank, so to speak, with lots of positive feedback when they're, you know, doing a good job. Because the, the criticism uh, is the thing that gets, we don't get anywhere with that. They get stuck on, if they didn't do it right, then they'll never do it again. Um, so they need a lot of positive feedback and encouragement uh, in order to kind of stay the course and, and, and keep going with it. So um, I think sometimes for parents, we just don't always know, like, what what's, what is the approach? So so Jarrett, can you kind of let's let's start talking about uh, interventions and strategies that parents can use when we're parenting kids, you know, that have most likely have prenatal trauma, whether it be um, from FASD or something else, but also um, you know these other developmental traumas until they've come to live with us. And now we're trying to figure out what's the best way, like what can we do to help our kids? Yeah, first and foremost, learning as much as you can finding a network of people who understand these topics. And again, it's not just one professional is probably going to know all this. But for example, if the person is dealing with some medical health related challenges, working with healthcare providers to rule out any of the medical component, maybe there's some nutritional deficits going on, working with the nutritionist, maybe there's some sleep stuff or some sensory issues or some language problems. So again, Maybe it's getting an assessment or an evaluation to really find out what areas of functioning are not at adequate level and really targeting those interventions. Being aware, again, using attachment-based approaches, you can't go wrong with that. Even if the person doesn't have attachment problems, if you use attachment-based approaches, who doesn't do well with empathy and attunement and validation and structure and predictability and kindness and curiosity and not jumping to conclusions and helping that person really feel valued and heard and known and being consistent. And when you become frustrated as a caregiver, trying to stay regulated, that's easier said than done because I'm coming at this from the professional lens, but parental self-regulation, parental self-care and parental modeling is so important. And being aware of how you're modeling, not just your behaviors and actions and words, how are you modeling what time you go to bed at night? How are you modeling health behaviors, exercise, eating habits? How are you modeling your own screen time use or being on your gadgets? So just looking at whatever behaviors you do, how are you modeling that to the child? I think it's also very important when we're thinking of these things, and if we're to throw FASD into this mix, does that child have any communication or listening problems? There is some evidence to support the fact that hearing-related impairments are higher among kids with FASD compared to the general population. So ruling that out, because maybe in some cases, the child isn't picking up all the words because maybe there's some hearing deficits going on or some communication or language barriers. So it's maybe working with like a speech language communication pathologist. What about cooperation abilities, friendship making abilities, those social skills? So maybe it's finding a really good social kind of skills worker or a coach that could come into the home or 
Maybe it's a group the person joins. Helping that person really develop, I think, pro-social problem-solving and conflict resolution abilities and teaching really in modeling this too, what, what's the difference between being assertive versus being aggressive? Looking at too, I think some self-perception areas, we talked a little bit about this, but focusing on self-esteem dynamics and self-worth, even self-competence and self-knowledge, helping really hone in and being attuned to that child or adult or teenager's hobbies and skills and interest and attributes and their qualities and really fostering that and really encouraging those areas. If you notice there's some real talent in certain areas, focusing on those things maybe. Helping that person develop more self-efficacy as well. Self-efficacy is basically helping that person believe in their own beliefs, believe in their own abilities, Give you an example, let's say it's a parent and they have lower levels of parental self-efficacy and they don't believe they're a good parent or they're not worthy of a, being a good parent. You can about imagine if a parent has that belief, they're probably going to be acting on that and then demonstrating that through their words and actions. So focusing on self-efficacy, very, very important. If you look at this through a trauma lens, trauma-informed care lens, the bedrock, I think, is forming stability and safety. Without that child feeling safe and secure, that's shaky ground. It's like building that house. That's the foundation, and you build on that. Other things then you would build on the foundation, helping them learn how to manage their emotions more effectively, so looking at some self-regulation skills, finding a therapist or coach who can teach self-regulation, helping that child as they get older, learning like relational dynamics, social communication, interpersonal functioning. So starting to focus really on social communication abilities. Anything you can do to, I think, to enhance positive affect can be very, very helpful. And really looking at this too, if we look at the whole family system, psychoeducation is important. That's basically finding someone who can educate you and your family and child about these things. And if you're educating a child, obviously taking into account their emotional and social age, but focusing in on developing positive coping skills. There's a million things we can do. Relaxation techniques. Maybe it's deep breathing. Maybe it's sleep hygiene practices, basically working with like a sleep coach or a sleep consultant and focusing on getting a good schedule down to help that child sleep better, looking at any barriers that may get in the way of that child getting a good night's sleep. Helping that child learn how to express themselves too. Emotional expression is very healthy. Teaching them it's okay to feel sad, scared, and angry, but it's not okay to start screaming and yelling and throwing and hitting things. Starting to help that child and model to that child how to express when you're feeling scared, how to express when you're feeling anxious. And what I've seen, just cases I've consulted on, that can be tricky in some cases, but working maybe with a music therapist, 
or an art-based therapist or an equine assisted therapist or someone that uses like animals or dogs for different types of therapeutic approaches. Those are things that can be very, very helpful. And I think too, as that child gets older, depending on their level of competency, their, their knowledge base, looking at this complex trauma literature, you'll find creative arts-based therapies. So not just art, music therapy, poetry therapy, sand tray therapy, drama therapy, or something that's called psychodrama. In this literature too, you'll, you'll find some authors talking about like drum-based interventions, like joining a drum group and just getting connected to your, not just your mind, but your body. These are things that can help make more meaning out of what that child experienced because maybe they don't have the words to connect to what they're feeling. These kind of things may bring that out more, especially music. I've, I've heard that over and over and over again from so many people that I just love music. That's when I feel most attuned to how I'm feeling. Although those would be a, a few things to consider. And I would say too, if you can promote that internal locus of control and helping that person basically have a greater sense of control over the outcomes of their life, regardless of the circumstances. So they have, they really teaching them how to take more of a, like a responsible mindset or approach to their own actions. And if you can do this, the research around internal locus of control shows that if we can reach that level, we, are, we typically have more grit, we can stick with it, not throw in the towel. It's been shown to have profound impacts on our physical and emotional and behavioral health. It's really rooted in self-determination. And self-determination, I think, plays a huge role in how we function independently and making choices and just living a healthy day-to-day -day life. Those are just a, a few things. I mean, we could spend all day talking about interventions, but these are a few basic tips to try as caregivers. Yeah, so, so much. Um, I, again, I've got pages and pages of notes, but as we wrap up, just for, you know, as we're kind of processing everything that you've shared with us, what would be the top three, Jared, that you would say we could begin implementing as parents to help our kids right away? What would be the top three things we should start doing right now? Connect with professionals who understand these topics. And part of that getting an assessment, getting evaluations, because without that information and data, it's hard, I think, in my opinion, to develop a goal plan and intervention plan that's really tailored to that person's unique strengths and limitations. So having that information, I think, can be very, very helpful. I think another area, and I'll say this about all these topics, Getting sleep under control, really sleep's foundation to health and wellness, in my opinion, regardless of diagnosis. And the third area I would say is just as caregivers, taking good care of yourself. And we can't just focus on the child. I'm a big believer in focusing on the entire family system. So parental 
self-care, having a good network, talking to other adults who know what you're experiencing can make all the difference in the world. And in my opinion, again, coming from the professional angle, I can talk all day about the research literature, but you guys are the true, true experts. I've learned so much from talking to caregivers over the past many years. Talking to other caregivers who have gone through this, I think is such an important thing in finding that support group, or maybe it's finding your own therapist or counselor to talk to. Well, I'm going to need another notebook already, (laughs) Dr. Brown. You've provided so much vital information today, and I I love how you're bringing us back down to the basics with, you know, self-care and sleep and getting uh, support from uh, those who who get it, professionals who who get it, who are who are are trauma and FASD uh, informed. So that is huge. Uh, I am looking forward to our next episode in this special series. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more, take a deep dive into our digital world, our screen time uh, for our kids and for ourselves, because I think every parent needs to hear um, really about that. I, I read a book recently. I my, my eyes have been opened. My mind is blown. Uh, and I know you have lots of wisdom in that area. So um, we're going to talk about screen time next time and its negative impacts. Um, such a relevant topic, like I said, for every parent, especially us foster adoptive and kinship caregivers. We don't even realize that all that screen time is really exacerbating a lot of the symptoms and things that you've been sharing uh, with us. So definitely going to take a close look at that next time. Um, so in the meantime, thank you so much, Jared, for sharing your expertise with us today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Sandra. Thank you so much. An honor to be back with your audience. Thank you. Wow. What another amazing episode with Dr. Jared Brown. Um, I thank you for uh, tuning in to these uh, episodes for this special series um, on FASD, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and Trauma. Uh, Remember, our regular episodes drop on Mondays, so be sure to catch those along with these bonus episodes. Our August regular podcast episodes, we're talking a lot about educating our children who have FASD and trauma. Um, Are you homeschooling? Are they in private school, public school? How's the IEP thing going? How is the education going? Uh, So, my episodes are, the guests are all talking about how they're schooling their kids. Uh, and then our September episodes are all going to be focused on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder because it is, September is FASD Awareness Month. Uh, if you have a question for me or Dr. Jared Brown, uh, please email me at sandraflackjfo at gmail.com so we can be sure to answer your question uh, by, that you send by email. Um, we can hopefully even get it on the podcast as a question and Dr. Brown will give the answer. So feel free to reach out about um, anything we've been talking about with Dr. Brown. If you have a question, uh, we will make sure that uh, he gets that question uh, and gives us that answer. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, be sure to let us know by subscribing. And again, let your fellow adoptive and foster parent friends know so that they can listen to and be encouraged and equipped as you are. Uh, Again, 
September. Lots of things coming up in September. We've got a treasure trove here for you. Uh, September is International FASD Awareness Month. Lots of stuff going on here. Uh, JFO, my organization, is an FASD United affiliate. That means we are one of about two organizations in New York State to contact for FASD resources, supports, advocacy, questions, um, anything that you need. We'd be happy to help you in any way that we can. One of the ways we're helping parents is through our FASD 101 training, which I offer online or in person. It's a 90-minute training about FASD for parents and professionals. Uh, and in the coming months, we will be adding our facets workshops as I become a certified facilitator of the facets neurobehavioral model. So as time goes on, we're going to be adding more workshops uh, different different levels of training on FASD, but the one we have out there right now is a great beginner one, and I would love to bring it to you, to your um, support group, to your group of parents uh, at church that are meeting uh, adoptive and foster parents, um, and and your folks at church, anybody who's coming in contact with your kids uh, at church, at school, um, babysitters, grandparents, anybody. Um, I'd be happy to do a presentation so everybody can kind of really begin to have that foundation on understanding FASD. Uh, JFO is also a platinum sponsor for FASD United's Run FASD, Run Fast. It is a virtual 5K. You can run, walk, or roll anywhere, anytime during the month of September. We are also hosting a local 5K here in upstate New York, to learn more about that, to register for the 5K, wherever you are in the country, you can go to runfasd.org. Now, I would love to have you uh, join us for our special community that we are creating also for foster and adoptive parents. This is something that's been in the works and I've been teasing out for quite some time. But if you are a foster or adoptive or kinship caregiver, and you are raising children you believe or know to have been prenatally exposed to alcohol, whether they've had an FASD diagnosis or not, maybe you just suspect it, but you're parenting them, you're in the trenches, and you need help. You need to talk with and hang out with and interact with folks that are on the same journey who get it, um, because you know you have to be on this journey in order to get it. Natalie Vecchione of FASD Hope and myself are collaborating together to bring you Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for us caregivers raising individuals with FASD. Like I said, diagnosed or not, this faith-based community will include an online bi-monthly support group. Two Tuesday evenings a month, we will be meeting in a uh, Zoom room where you can come and interact with us and learn from us and learn together from each other. We'll also be having one Tuesday evening per month, which we're calling uh, VIP conversations, which is sort of a, um, you get to tune into pretty much like a podcast interview where we'll have a special guest. Uh, we'll ask them some questions. They'll tell their story. And then you as a community member will be able to ask them questions directly as well. 
And we are also offering a private Facebook group for community members, which will include um, a Saturday morning devotional. Um, it'll be a video featuring either myself or Natalie bringing the devotional for you for some encouragement um, and some self-care, soul care. Um, so for more details about this community, to join the community, you would go to my website, justicefororphansny.org slash training. At the top of the page, there's a tab that says training. Click on training. And then there's a drop down box. Click on FASD and all of our information about our FASD trainings, as well as resources. And now uh, the FASD community that we've created, Hope for the FASD Journey, all of that information is there. So just go to our website and you can get it all there, get all the details. Um, you can check out uh, also for a copy of my book, uh, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. You can find that on wherever you buy your books, such as Amazon, wherever you get it. But if you want to sign copy, you can go to my personal website, sandraflack.com. And I want to just give a shout out to some of the local businesses that sponsor JFO and our care portal work because they really help us do what we do. Uh, we are a nonprofit and we need support from uh, businesses and churches and individuals. Uh, so we are just giving shout outs to our biggest donors, Tri-Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Cooksaki, and Coleman Insurance Agency. These businesses care about children and families in crisis. Be sure to follow Justice for Orphans on Facebook and Instagram, as well as myself, Sandra Flack. I am so grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today, and I'm thrilled to have you along for this parenting journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.